went into the meeting room. Nobody was in the meeting room. And I sat there. And it was real quiet. For the first time in my life, I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I have never surrendered. But I will tell you, when I said that, I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off of my shoulders. You know, I don't think I cried, but I was so emotional. And I was at that point where I realized that I can't do this by myself. I needed to surrender. When we read We Agnostics, which, you know, I used to think I never needed that chapter because I believed in God, not realizing that I was agnostic. When I read in We Agnostics where it says God is either everything or else he is nothing. What was our choice to be? What was our choice to be on page 53? Let me tell you that uh, is the, the first thing that helped me to understand what my relationship with God is supposed to look like. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode number 22. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front-row seat to the recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad that you are here, and I hope that you find what you are looking for. And now it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give this a bright date if they choose to. Hello, my name is Patrice, and I'm a grateful, recovered alcoholic, and my sobriety date is February 8th, 2019. So how long is that? It'll be three years in February. Can you tell us about the early years of your life, and what did your family look like, and where you were born? Sure. Um, I was born uh, in 1968 in a small town um, about 60 miles east of Austin called Giddings, Texas, Uh, It's actually a small town where my mom and her siblings were raised, and I still have a lot of extended family there. Uh, My mom was like 19 years old um, when she was pregnant with me, and she was just out of high school, and my biological dad wanted nothing to do with her after she became pregnant, so I never met him. So um, my mom moved to Austin, you know, to start her uh, new life, and she left me with my grandmother, And my youngest aunt was living with my grandmother at the time. And so they raised me for about a year until my mom um, came back to get me. When my mom moved to Austin, she um, met my stepdad, like, really quickly. And they only knew each other for, like, two weeks. And they got married. And he told her that not to worry that I was his child that he was going to take care of me and pretty much like didn't want my mom to try to have any connection uh, with him. So I was the, he was the only dad that I know. And I never referred to him as a stepdad. He was dad. As I reflect back on my childhood, I can see all the isms 
of the disease, you know, from a very, very early age. You know, because I've always been man- manipulative, I'm self-centered, ego-driven, like, you know, and just think I know everything. Was your uh, mom or your stepdad or your grandma or your aunt, were you those spiritual, were you, were you exposed to spiritual stuff, religious type stuff growing up, spirituality? Oh, we went to church. I, I was raised in the church. Yeah. Yeah. When I um, was growing up, we went to church every Sunday. Okay. We didn't go to church during the week. Um, and then in the church, I was very involved. Like I would always get speaking parts or, you know, I would get a part in the play Mm -hmm. or we were having some type of event. They'd always ask me to read something. Mm -hmm. So I was very active. I was an usher. I was in the choir. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We were very active in the church and church was a very important thing. And it meant a lot to my mom and my grandmother. Yeah. You know, but what I know now growing up is we just went to church. That's all we did. There was no spirituality. Uh You know, even when um, we're when we go to church, the only that's the only time we would read the Bible. Okay. That was the only time that we would like we, we never prayed as a family okay. at home. Okay. But it was so important uh, to go to church to the extent that it was almost like the, the those that don't go to church, they're not good people. Yeah. You know, and I and even like I can remember as my kids were growing up and they would meet uh, new friends and everything. And I would ask, what church do they go to? You know, and they're just like. Mom, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I was associating that, that if they don't go to church, then they must not be good people. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we were just religious. Yeah. It wasn't spirituality. Did it, you enjoy your time there? You said you were super Oh, involved. I love church. You did? Oh, yes. Tell me about singing in the choir. I don't know anybody that's ever sang in a, a church choir. What was that like? Oh, it's so, it's so beautiful. But now I know like it's, it was my ego. I, uh, <laughs> I can remember, you know, I was an alto. So I wanted to make sure that I was the best alto. What does that mean? High, high singer? It's like the medium. There's yeah. soprano and then there's alto. Okay. And then there's tenor. Yeah. So um, I was a, a, usually like a more of a backup singer. Mm. I, I wasn't really a solo singer. Every now and then. I would uh, sing a solo, but I prefer to be like behind the scenes, like a backup type person. Wow. So and I liked being in the choir because that's also uh, another place where the spotlight was on me. Oh, you like that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) It's all about me. So, yes, I loved uh, my mother didn't have to beg me to go to church and she didn't have to beg me to go to the choir rehearsals or Mm. anything like that. I always wanted to be there because I felt important. I, I had some experience growing up, um, sorry, as an adult mm-hmm. uh, with church. And um, I don't know if you want me to share that. Yeah, now for sure. Or, I'd love to hear about that. Okay. So when I first came into these rooms in 2012, that's when I first um, made an attempt to recover. I... But I had been an alcoholic since I was in my 20s. I know that now, you know, because I was like white knuckling it between pregnancies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, but I was in we me and my husband, my husband is from Nigeria and we've been married now. It'll be 31 years. Congratulations. Thank you. And we have four children. So he's also like um, he's actually spiritual. 
He's not just religious. So um, we actually, we went to church. Um, It's unfortunate. Um, During my disease, I kind of stopped going. So then my children, I didn't take my children to church. Okay. Except my uh, oldest daughter. She was really, really saved. She was at a very early age. And when I stopped going, she would call people to come pick her up to go to church. But, you know, when they were younger, I was consistent in taking them to church uh, before my alcoholism, you know, got out of control. So at the end of my addiction, I was very, very active in a church. I was the choir secretary. I was the person that coordinated all of the events. I was like the go-to person for whatever they needed. That's interesting. And they're still like calling me. At the end of your addiction, you were there? I was, yeah, at the end. And I was drunk. I was going to church. Oh, yes. I was going to church drunk. You're not supposed to do that. (laughs) It was crazy. You know, I was in the choir and, um, you know, my drinking got to the point where it was 24-7. Me too, yeah. So, you know, on the way to church, I have a cup. Yeah. What what was in that cup? Of course it's vodka. What? Oh, can you believe that? Just straight up or? No, I, I mix it with like cranberry juice and oh, stuff yeah, like keep that. Keep it classy. Yeah, and my husband is not one of us and he always um, used to make fun of me and say, he said, what is the point of drinking it if you got to mix it with all that shit? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, because when he was drinking and although he stopped because of me, but yeah. uh, because mine had gotten so bad, but he would just drink it straight and he never understood. You always got to mix it with something. If you don't like it, why are you drinking it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm drinking it because I like the way it makes me feel. Yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah. So I um, so I would be drinking on the way to church, and then he'd come out to the car after we get there, and he said, they're getting ready to start praise and worship. What are you doing? Uh, I said, I want to finish my drink. You know? Yeah. I, I, it's just like I couldn't leave the drink. Yeah. And I would finish my drink, and then I would go and, into the choir stand yeah. drunk. Yeah. Uh, if they asked me to lead a song or something, I would forget the lyrics. Mm-hmm. I would be up on the stage and I'd forget the lyrics. Um, one time I went to the choir stand with my wig on backwards. Oh, no. And nobody said anything. Yeah. And so when I got sober this time, that's when I knew. I said, they knew that I was an alcoholic. And I know they smelled it yeah. because I would stay up all night yeah. drinking. And then by the time it's time to get ready for church, then I'm getting like really tired and drowsy. But then I force myself to go. But I know that I reeked of alcohol and they knew that I was an alcoholic, but nobody said anything. There's a lot of guys that I sponsor that their main drink is is vodka. And I think a lot of guys that, and girls that drink vodka, they maybe lie to themselves and be like, oh, you can't smell this. Guess what? You can't smell it. Oh, you can. It reeks. When it comes out, when you're sweating it out of your pores the next day, I mean, it's just... It's just like, wow. I tell some of my friends, I, you know, I won't. Well, anyways, I was sponsoring a guy recently, and, and uh, I was like, man, you're lucky I'm not a police officer because I would pull you out of the car right now because you reek of alcohol. Yes. And, you know, now that I'm sober, I can smell it from a mile away. Yeah. I'll be in the parking lot like at high schools, and I can smell it in the parking lot because yeah. I was also that mother yeah. that 
took vodka, you know, to the games within a water bottle and, yeah. and, and different stuff like that. Or I'll sit in the car. Yeah. 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 Car, carpool. Let's, I want to, I want to slide um, back to your mom and uh, stepdad. What was your relationship like with them growing up? What was, what was going on with you and your mom and your stepdad? Well, my mom and dad, we didn't have alcohol in the house uh, per se. And my mom didn't drink. Okay. The only thing that I have ever saw my mom drink is maybe twice. Uh, she has seven siblings, mm-hmm. and she has uh, four of them are, you know, are her sisters. And so, have like twice in my life, they would say, oh, let's have a nightcap, you know? And then they would go to the grocery store and get those little mini Miller Lite uh, cans of beer. They were like really tiny. I thought they were so cute. Yeah. Uh, and they would drink that. They drink one of those, and then they would get so giggly, and yeah. then they pass out. Yeah. They were not drinkers. You know, she she had that, and she could take it or leave it. That kind of person. Yeah. Um, my stepdad was a he drank because he would go out on the weekend. He would gamble. He would party. He's a, he was the type of a man that he would just take his whole paycheck and like make it five times more on the weekend because he was into gambling. But he would come home and he would be pretty drunk. Uh, sometimes he'd fall asleep in the car. Uh-huh. And in the morning, my mom would have to wake him up. And he didn't go to church. Um, my mom didn't drive, first of all, which used to always bother me, and I bothered me, and I always wanted to make sure that I drove uh, when I uh, was old enough. And my stepdad would like take us everywhere. And on Sunday morning, sometimes he'd be passed out in a car from the night before, and my mom would have to go out there and get him. Uh, sometimes if he made it in the house before we woke up or whatever, I could hear him throwing up and everything. You know, so he drank, but he didn't drink drink in the house. And we never had, like, beer or anything in the refrigerator. Was that scary to you as a little girl, his behavior? Yes. It kept me very nervous. I was a nervous, nervous, nervous child. Very, very nervous. Yeah. Um, and I was real shy, which today is, like, really weird. But I was, like, real, real shy. My mom was a good cook and she baked and everything. And I have um, always been like an overweight child. You know, my stepdad used to joke with me and he would call me uh, Fat Albert. You remember that cartoon character? Yeah. Yeah. So he would call me Fat Albert and like the kids um, would be children, you know, the kids in the neighborhood and stuff. They would be asking me if I'm pregnant, you know, because I was I was just that big. Uh, so my mom, you know, she's a real mild mannered woman and, um, you know, she grew up in the country and she didn't have more than a high school education. There was nothing that was really significant about the relationship. Um, we didn't say I love you to no, each other. None of y'all did. Mm-mm. It was when I went to college, when I went off to college that, um, when I was there, then I started saying it before we hung up, Yeah. but we never Really? I would, it wasn't that kind of thing with us. We didn't say I love you. We didn't show affection. Yeah. Um, I was afraid of my stepdad. Yeah. Just in fear. I hated to ask for anything. Yeah. If I needed it. Do you think he had an alcohol problem? It sounds like he has some symptoms. You know, know, it sounded like he does have some symptoms because especially when I hear people say that they binge drink. 
mm-hmm. on the weekends. Yeah. And that's almost what it seems like he did. But during the week, he was a great provider. Yeah. You know, he went to work. That was never an issue. Right. We had everything um, that we needed as children. You know, we didn't live in a um, like a, a rich neighborhood by by no means. But we had more than most of the people. What about your brother? Oh, my brother. My brother and I, we we never got along. In fact, we we fought a lot. If you didn't know us, you wouldn't even know that he was my brother. Um, we physically, we looked totally different and behavior wise was totally different. Um, I always looked at him that he was a troublemaker because from the time he was in elementary school, that's when he started going to juvenile detention centers, uh, juvenile state facilities. And I felt like in high school, I felt like I was an only child. Because he was always gone. And up until about two years ago, he was in and out of jail, in and out of jail. He is an addict. And uh, I thought that because he was an addict, uh, that I was a better person than him. And at that time, when he started dabbling into the drugs and stuff, I know now that it was in his teen years. And um, I would have never did anything like that because I'm a good I was a, a goody two shoe. You know, I grew up in that era where uh, Nancy Reagan's campaign, just say no to drugs, you know, and then they'd have this um, frying pan with an egg in it. And then they would say, this is your brain on drugs. So I always associated the drugs with the uh, that it was illegal. And because I grew up with this punishing God, you know, the kind of God that I had was one that I would be punished for sin. You know, I used to always hear, I'm going to go to a lake of fire for lying. I'm going to go to a lake of fire for stealing. And it's, it was almost to the point, it's like, if I think the wrong way, I'm going to go to hell. So I thought that, you know, I'm not going to do drugs because it's illegal. And um, he was a really, really, I mean, like an, a drug addict of just like really, really, he got low bottom. And he says that he's sober now uh, for over a year. He just came back from uh, prison about two years ago. And um, he's in Austin. He lives with my mom. And he says that he's sober. So, but he and I, we never got along because to me, he caused problems for us. Uh, I was always nervous because I didn't know when people knock on the door, it was like, is this the police or is this a neighbor saying that he did something to their kid? Is this somebody saying that he stole something? And so uh, I had real deep resentment against him because um, he, he was making us look bad. Okay. That kind of thing. And even today, we're cordial. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I'm not nearly, not nearly as resentful. As I was, because I know today that he is who he is. And if he's, it's none of my business whether he is actually clean or not, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I get that today. And I just respect him and I show love and tolerance today. Let's, let's move forward to uh, when you were first kind of 
started to experiment or dabble with, with alcohol. It sounds like you stayed away from drugs pretty, pretty good. But uh, what, what about the alcohol? When did you first start drinking? How were you exposed to it? The first time I was exposed to it, I was about 14 years old. And my aunt had some, the favorite one that I was living with before my mom moved uh, to Austin. Yeah. So. How much older is she than you? She's only like seven years older than me. Okay. She so thought I were like an older sister. Yes. You yeah. know, and, she, and I was like her favorite niece. Yeah. So she was like 21, 22 when mm. you were 14. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, she had some pink uh, champagne. Have you ever heard of pink champagne? No, it sounds really bad. <laughs> it's a real old school drink, and it's like a real cheap. To me, it, when I think about it now, it's probably the uh, ripple uh-huh. that Fred Sanford used to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, she was drinking some of that, and she asked me if I wanted to taste it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I said, sure. But do you know from that, uh, I had a couple of sips of that. But when I took it, it was like, where has this been? Oh, really? Nice. All my life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it, I know what you're saying. <laughs> that sense of ease and comfort that's described in the book, yeah, that's yeah. what it was to me. Yeah. I was like, this is what I've been looking for. Yeah. Because I was so nervous all the time. Yeah. But what I also know, the reason why I was so nervous is because I was sneaky. I wanted to be to look in a certain way. So I did everything that I could to prevent people for, from seeing who I really am. Uh-huh. You know, because my aunts and my uncles, they would be telling the, my other cousins, why can't y'all be like Patrice? She's this. She's that. And I am the worst. And, and, and they knew it. They knew that that my cousins knew that I wasn't all that. So it was um, so they resented me. But my uncles and aunts and everybody on the outside, everything looked so good. And I looked like the perfect child. So but when I took that drink, I was just like, that's it. That's this is it. But you know what's really weird? I didn't have access again to alcohol until I went to college. Wow, just that one time at 14? Let me tell you, and I never forgot it. Really? It was so weird. I never forgot it. And, of course, I used to hear about um, the kids in my school, in high school, they had these drinking parties and all that. But because of my weight and everything, I didn't have the, um, the confidence to like really, really, really hang out with them okay. or anything like that. And I was actually voted like uh, most likely to succeed and most witty mm-hmm. my, sen- my senior year. But I still didn't have the confidence to really go around those other kids. Mm-hmm. So and then, you know, and then it was also the element of, OK, well. They're, that's illegal. They're not supposed to be drinking. Who's buying them? This, this, that, and the other. So I didn't want to be a part of the group to be known as a person that did those things, right? Mm-hmm. But like I said, when I took that drink, it was just like, it was magic. And I never forgot it. And it's when I went to college that I started drinking again. Drinking. Yeah. And it went, it went out of control. I couldn't finish. Really? Because I was I was drinking. I had uh, friends in college that liked to go to all these different parties and stuff like that. And I would not go to the parties and they would get so upset with me because I wouldn't go. But I would get something to drink and stay in my room oh, wow. and drink. 
When you let me ask you a question about high school, when you said that uh, you had friends that were having drinking parties, but you didn't have the confidence to go and hang out with them, what would you do instead? Would you go home and isolate? I pretty much isolated, but I had um, started dating uh-huh. older men, mm-hmm. so I would I would just hang out with older men. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. At a very early age, I started that. So you you got into college and you started to drink and you isolated and all your friends would go to the party. What were you doing? Just get on the vodka right away, or what were you doing then? Well, back then I was like really experimenting. I didn't have a particular, you know. I was yeah. just so excited about it. I would try different things: brown liquor, white yeah. liquor, tried wine. Yeah, you know. Um, now I did uh, did try some marijuana probably in high school yeah i tried marijuana yeah and then one time um one of my girlfriends gave me uh something she called it a pink heart okay i haven't heard of that i think it was speed i think that's what it is <laughs> was it a pill or something but it didn't do anything for me yeah and we didn't do anything for me yeah nothing did it for me the way alcohol did yeah. Um, you know, like I said, my brother was kind of in and out. Mm-hmm. So he was into drugs and he always had something. But I never had an interest yeah. in trying any of it. Were you, uh, were you able to go to class and do some of the schoolwork and hang out and enjoy the college experience? Or did just drinking just take on a massive role? Drinking really took on a massive role. I didn't really do the typical stuff that college students would do and unfortunately i got like 80 something hours and then i didn't go back okay have you gone back yet i'm in school now i'm uh, studying to be a substance abuse counselor all right and i'm going to uh, get a social work degree so i'm gonna yeah yeah use those use Mm -hmm. those hours and all the new ones you're getting yes did you just decide to go back home? Did you move in with an older guy? What did you do when you left college after those 80 hours? Well, actually, when I left college, the semester that I left college is when I met my husband. So I was working at Tom Thumb in Louisville okay. as a service manager. And I was working at an overnight shift. Uh-huh. And he had come in there and him and his friend had the cleaning contract for the store to clean the floors. And so, you know, he would come in there and, you know, he kept talking to me and, you know, and all this stuff. And he was saying, you're going to be my wife and, you know, all this old crazy stuff. And I was like, dude, you don't even know me, please, you know, get away. (laughs) But anyway, the relationship evolved and uh, my husband and I, we got married. So I didn't go back home. I went, you know, to live with him. So then we had our children. We have four children, and they're all grown now. And I was drunk their entire childhood. And I don't remember so many things. It's, you know, I know now what oblivion means because I was in oblivion. I was, I was not present. It was as my, uh, I'm going to say about 2010 is when my drinking really got out of control. And that's when, um, and then I lost my first job to drinking in 2012. Tell me about that if you want to. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So I uh, have a lot of uh, call center experience Mm -hmm. and I, I I didn't have a degree, but I started working in call centers and I worked myself up my way up. And, um, you know, I became a team leader, then I became uh, a supervisor, then I became a manager. And so I was working 
uh, at the best job that I ever had uh, as far as like pay was in 2010. I was offered a job and I took the job. But let me also add that in 2008, I had a gastric bypass surgery. You know, when I had the surgery before I had it, you know, they were asking all these questions about like, how much do I drink? Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was already drinking alcoholically, mm -hmm. but I would never tell the doctor how much I drank. Okay. You know, I would always say I'm just a social drinker or I just have a few drinks a week, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, and they kept saying that, you know, if you if you're um, an alcoholic, then it's probably best not to have the surgery. But I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I knew, I, I knew that I was lying about the amount I drank, but I still, it didn't register. Patrice, you're an alcoholic. Right. So I went ahead and had the surgery. When I had that surgery, they said that I shouldn't drink for a year. Let me tell you, that was like the most horrible time. I was feeling that red, that restless, irritable, and discontent that I didn't know that's what that was. Mm -hmm. I thought everybody felt like that about a drink. That was back when all these uh, message boards first started, like iVillage. I don't know if you're familiar with that web website. It was iVillage, and they, have like a, a, they had a lot of message boards, and they had one for weight loss surgery, gastric bypass. And I would go on there, you know, looking for support and everything. But almost every day for 11 months, I would get on the board and ask, is there anybody that, that's drinking or has anyone had a drink yet? You know, and all this stuff. And then finally, um, I was about 11 months. Uh, it was 11 months after my uh, surgery. A lady responded and she said, you're always asking that. She said, why don't you just drink if you want to drink? She said, you're not going to die. And so from that point, then I, that's when I went ahead. I took that as my okay to go ahead and start drinking. And was then she, was she the first person to respond to she that? She was question? the first person. Nobody else ever responded. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. It was so weird. Yeah. But she said, she, "If you want to drink, drink." You're always asking that. Yeah, yeah. So that's when I took off and uh, I started drinking again. Mm -hmm. And. Um, you know, I always hear people say, oh, well, my drinking didn't get out of control until I had a gastric bypass. That's not my truth. My drinking was out of control before I had the gastric bypass. Mm -hmm. Now, after the gastric bypass, that's when the blackouts oh, really? started. Oh, no. And then I could drink. I could drink so much that it just didn't even make sense. The amounts. I shouldn't even, no living individual should be able to drink um, the amounts that I drank. You were drinking every day, right? Oh, yes. You never gave up a day? I never, so, no. So what happened in 2012 when you lost that good job? You, you were at the top of the call Okay, center. so yes. Yeah, so um, I went to, uh, so I got an, another job in two, 2012. I, got, I left one company, went to another one, and I went to the interview drunk, <laughs> I was drinking before the interview. Yeah, I did and, that too. It's embarrassing. They, when I look back on that, that's embarrassing. Yeah, but it's just like, I, they didn't even, obviously they didn't know it. Let me tell you a story real quick that I've, mm -hmm. never, I've never told anybody this story. Um, so I was a full-blown alcoholic, full-blown drug addict, and I really, really, really wanted this job. And the problem with me really wanting that job 
in the real world is, is I was drinking and doing drugs daily. And so I knew that I had an interview coming up um, at, at 9.30 in the morning. Um, but I ended up getting drunk and high before the interview at 9.30 in the morning. And I was disheveled, you know, and this is a dream job. This is a job I had wanted. And I knew this interview was coming up. And I got so drunk and so high before the interview that I went to the interview in a suit, but I, I didn't have any socks on. I forgot to put socks on. So I was wearing dress shoes with no socks and um, a suit. And I was drunk and high. And I go into this guy's office and we start talking. And about 15 minutes in the interview, he stops and he just looks at me. And he looks at my feet and he looks at my, my shoes and, my, and he goes, he goes, you're not, where, why don't you wear your socks? Why are you not oh wearing any God. socks? <laughs> and I looked down and I was drunk and high and I looked down. And I was like, I don't have socks on, but I've got on a suit and dress shoes and I'm in this dream interview. And he has stopped the interview to ask me why I'm not wearing socks. And by the way, I think he knows I'm high and drunk and it's 930 in the morning. Oh my goodness. And I was horrified and embarrassed. And I knew that, um, I already knew I was alcoholic drug addict. I was just trying to get a job to make some money, a good job. I mean, I was in there like interviewing for a really good job. And I look back on that now and I like am embarrassed about the fact that I did that and, uh, horrified. Uh, but it also shows me now that I look back at it with a sober mind that my addiction had me by the throat yeah. at that point. And it wasn't up to me whether or not I was going to be drinking or drugging anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it was on like Donkey Kong. I mean, it was green lights all day, every day. And I couldn't even contain myself. Um, and I knew that morning when I was getting drunk and high before the interview that I, sh that I shouldn't be doing that. I was like, this is a bad idea. For me, the drink always made everything better. Oh, yeah. You know, I felt because before the interview, I was so dang nervous and I was trying not to drink. Yeah. But on the way there, I stopped and picked up those little bottles of wine yeah, and yeah. just chugged them down, you know, uh, in the parking lot. Were you thinking it wasn't a good idea to be doing that before the interview? Or you of just, course. Yeah. I knew that it wasn't, a, but my nerves, Yeah, you know, if I said, oh, I'm not going to be able to get through this interview if I don't have something to drink. Mm -hmm. So the... Um, of course, alcohol gave me liquid courage. Right. So I went in there and boy, I aced that interview. They were so impressed. Did you wear socks? You had socks on? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were properly dressed. I was properly dressed. You know, I looked the part. Mm -hmm. Put it that way. Good. Yeah, I looked the part. And um, so they called me about uh, two days later and said they're just waiting for the background and everything to go through and all that. And I said, okay, cool. And I got the job. I was so surprised. The first day of work they were having had already scheduled a uh, team builder where we would go and prepare food. And it involved like drinking wine and all that. You know, it was like... We divided into teams and we, we cooked the meal. Before we went on the team builder trip, since I was just like it was my first day, they didn't really have anything for me to do because I didn't have my credentials and things for me to log in. And so I had called one of my drinking buddies from my old job and just say, hey, let's meet somewhere. And so we met and so I, I was smashed. So I got drunk and then I got on the bus for the team builder. And then I was all over this one guy and he doesn't even like women. 
Oh no! You know, but he he put up with me, right? And I, you know, and I was just all over him, and people were just looking at me. I'm making a spectacle of myself. Mm-hmm. So we get to the to the place where the we do the team builder to cook food. Then they have wine. I'm drinking all the wine. I mean, I know at that point they were probably like, "What the hell yeah. have we done?" You know, I couldn't believe that on my first day on the job that I'm doing this. Were you thinking that in real time or was this later that you thought that? No, later. You know, yeah, of course it would have been later. You know, when I think about it, it's like, how can I do this? You know, and the people and then the lady who actually referred me to the job, she worked there. She didn't know me. She was going based off of what someone else that knew me at my old job told her. So she heard about the behavior mm-hmm. that I exhibited, you know, during that team builder and all of that. So that was just the beginning. Now, this is the thing. That company that I worked for, drinking was like very, very prevalent amongst everybody. There was a lot of people who were um, heavy drinkers or alcoholics or whatever you want to call it. And they always had booze whenever there was something. I mean, plenty of it. The part about the drinking to them was it I don't think that was the big deal. It was the behavior once I took the drink. I continued to work there. I did really well. I was like top manager in my in my center and we had like 35 other managers in uh, across the US and I would always be in the top 5. So I was I performed and everybody liked me. My boss loved me, right? Well, it got to a point to where my drinking was getting just like so out of control. That's when it really started escalating to the 24-7 drinking. And on the way to work, I would always have to stop at a bar or I would buy something and sit in the car and finish it. And I wouldn't go in the building until I finished it. You know, it was just it was just crazy. So I would drink a couple. So this is what really got to the part where they fired me. So the first time, my first instance was I came in, I was drink, I was kind of drink, I was drunk and I was feeling good. And I told all my direct reports, I said, hey, y'all, let's go to lunch. Let's go to Gloria's. And I was already drunk. I had already been drinking. So we went to Gloria's. And by that time, I was a blackout drinker. So I didn't know all the stuff. I don't know when I blacked out. The next thing I know, I was in, um, in jail. I don't even remember all the events, but they said that I had became belligerent and all this stuff, and I wouldn't stop. And the, um, the restaurant workers, they are the ones that call the cops. I take all these people that report to me, and I go out and, and you know, we drink, and I black out. So this is what I'll tell you how much... They must have really, really liked me. So after um, that happened, then they were like, okay, that I would go and get help. And that was my first attempt um, in 2012 to get sober. And you're doing that to save your job or because I you did think- that to save my job. Okay. I was not thinking about okay. quitting. Okay. I went and uh, in fact, that's when I went to Maggie's. The first time. What's Maggie's? The Magdalene House is a, a social detox uh, program for women. It's free. 
Uh, it's two weeks, and they focus on the um, the first three uh, three steps. Who told you about of that? AA, and that's what I don't remember how I found out about it. Yeah, because I, the way I found uh, found out about it, I was actually trying to get into a place where I could be like away for a year. And it was another house that was in Waco, mm-hmm. but they didn't have any openings. And I was waiting, 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 waiting. And so somebody else told me about Maggie's. And I keep, I just wish I knew who told me about it. Yeah. But um, so I went there, but I was going there to keep a job. That's why I went. And so, of course, I'm so full of myself that I don't hear anything that they're saying. You know, I thought I did, but I didn't. But I stayed sober for about 90 days, if that. No, I didn't get to my 90 days. I had started volunteering there. At that time, it was only like three people that was volunteering. It was a very small little thing. It, we didn't have like the, uh, um, the admin staff and everything that we have right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was there all the time because even at that time, by that time, I've already pretty much abandoned my family. So I didn't have a place to stay. My husband was staying with his cousin. And so when I got there and I offered to be of service, and then she was like, well, sometimes we need people to overnight volunteer, you know, and stuff like that. So I, I would take her up on that, on that option to overnight volunteer, and then that way I didn't have to go stay with my husband. And his cousin when uh, so I was there one just one day I was there and the ladies were in a meeting and something just told me that it would be a good idea for me to go to Albertsons and get some wine. So I locked up the house. I went to the Albertsons, which was just a block away, and I got uh, some wine. And then that's when I started drinking you know at first I felt like I was controlling it because I wasn't doing it but eventually it did get out of hand I had to let them know that you know that I wasn't sober anymore but I was trying to hide it yeah so you know and it was just so weird well, how did how did your drinking affect your your family as okay. far as your, your kids and your marriage I mean are they I'm curious too. I guess we'll get to that later about how, how you're dealing with them now and what's going on with them now. But how, how did your drinking when you were actively drinking affect your, you being a, a mother, a wife, your family? So from in the beginning, I was a really good mom, of course, you know, I, cause I was like on top of it, especially with the first three, you know, even though I was drinking, it hadn't gotten like out of control, out of control yet. So, you know, I was able to instill morals and values in them. I was able to like, you know, even outside of school, teach them things, start teaching them before they actually went to preschool, you know, and all that. I was like, mom. Mm -hmm. And um, I I really can't tell you when things uh, got out of control. But when I was pregnant with the first two I didn't drink, even though it was I was going insane, that feeling, you know, that I didn't know what that was. You know, I was just white knuckling it. I wanted to drink. But I was thinking that everybody felt that way. I don't know why. I thought that that was a normal feeling, that all women, when they're pregnant, they feel like that and they can't wait to have a drink. Well, when it came to the third and the fourth one, 
I didn't wait. I had a drinks. And um, with the third one, I can't remember how many. I wasn't drinking every day, but I know I drank more with the last one than I did with the third one. And I never thought that I would be that mother that would drink when she's pregnant with a child. And it is just this year that I am able to admit that. I never shared that with anyone. As they were growing up, you know, they were very active in activities, you know, boys playing football and all of that and the girls and sports. And, and, I, and I went to everything, but I took a cup yeah. to everything. I always had a cup. Did they ever approach you and ask you, hey, mom, quit drinking or stop drinking or cut back or what are you doing? Did they ever like, did they ever say anything to you? They didn't start saying anything until like maybe when my oldest daughter went to college and that's when it started like going out of control and the abandonment of the family and everything just so that I could drink freely. You know, I was the breadwinner. And I abandoned them and they ended up getting evicted, you know, from their uh, from our apartment and all of that. And I didn't care. And this is just like alcohol that I was so obsessed with alcohol. Alcohol was like my everything, you know, but as they got older, um, they couldn't even like really like come to me and play with me and stuff like that, because like I could be sitting down. And I would have my drink on the floor or whatever. And they would like come running to me. Or I said, well, uh-uh. don't knock over my drink. Watch my drink. Watch my drink. And it even got to the point to where my, um, my youngest daughter would like, when they would all start playing around and whatever, she said, watch mama's drink. Don't knock mama's drink over. You know, so that just goes to show how much I was concerned about making sure that I had my drink. They couldn't even be free, you know? And I think for them growing up, they probably thought that was kind of pretty much normal. What was going down with you and your husband? Was he ever asking you, hey, can you? Oh, he, for a long time, he asked me, you know, he was begging me. And like I said, my husband is not one of us. He's one of those people that if he says, I'm just going to have one, he has one and he might not even finish it. As my drinking was escalating and like we would go to like parties, we used to go to a lot of African parties and stuff. And there's always a lot of beer and liquor. And sometimes they'd be sending you home with stuff, you know, cases of beer and all that stuff. So um, he would try to drink with me. But then one day he said, you know what? He said, this is crazy. He said, I can't do this. He said, he said, you know, I'm not, going, I'm not going to drink again. He said, this is insane. And he just stopped, and he never had a drink again. And I know this has probably been almost, uh, so 2012, because we always try to remember. I think it's been at least 10 or 15 years, because he stopped before I actually uh, started trying to get help. He told me uh, that he wasn't going to drink again, and he thought that, if he stopped drinking, that I would stop drinking. But at the time, we didn't know I was a full-blown alcoholic. And my drinking just continued. Until this day, he can go to a party, he can get on a flight, or hang out anywhere. He, he, he's just like, no, I don't drink. 
But he said it was because of what he saw in me that he's just like, this is crazy. And then he, I just took the, the fun out of drinking. <laughs> yeah. It was no longer fun. Yeah, yes. I mean, because it would get to the point where we would go to um, his friend owned the club, owns a club. Yeah. And one time, girl, I was on the dance floor <laughs> and I was in a blackout. I'm arguing with somebody that I don't even know, thinking that she's looking at my husband. And, and the next thing I know, they're carrying me out of the club because I passed out on the dance floor. And, and that's how it got at the end. You know, it's just like I just drink until I pass out. Yeah. It's no such thing uh, towards the end where, oh, I'm going to sleep, y'all. No. Yeah. Drink, pass out, wake up, finish whatever is left, if there's anything left. And then if there's not, then I'm, I'm, I'm making another drink. Wow, you're an alcoholic. I think. Oh, baby. <laughs> A real alcoholic. You got me convinced. Yeah. Are you guys still together? We are. And trust me, I did everything in my power for him to leave. And I used to, you know, say that if, if anybody did that to me, it's no way that I would put up with that. That's where I know that God sent me my real husband. With all the stuff that has happened with me throughout this journey of alcoholism, you know, I shouldn't even be here. He kept me and he protected me. My consequences, especially legal consequences, should have been so much worse. That was my next question. Did you have any other legal consequences besides the Mikosino blackout arrest? Did you have any other legal consequences? I don't even know how many public intoxications I had. Oh, no. They, <laughs> they got you. Let me tell you. They got you. I don't know how many uh, public intoxications I had. And I can tell you this. Most of them, I was actually in the car. And they should have been DWIs. Yeah, but they just got you out and said, let's go. Yeah, we had a, um, I had a situation where I was, had a, me and my friend, we had been drinking all day. And by the way, this is my friend that we, we partied and I drank more than she did. And um, she's gone today because of this disease. Yeah, She passed away like about three years ago. And, um, but anyway, uh, at the time we were partying and this is when I abandoned my family, you know. So we had been drinking all day. We went to like the Oak Cliff area to hang out with one of our coworkers and she's an alcoholic too. Um, we both, we all went to IOP together and all that. And she also worked at the job where I got fired. We were driving, me and her were driving home. It's like my body just shut down without me even realizing you know, that it was shutting down and I'm driving and all of a sudden I wake up to me like swerving the car, just like going everywhere. I woke up and then I said, you know, luckily we didn't hit anybody. And so then I was able to pull off of the access road in Richardson. I pulled off on the access road and for whatever reason, I just parked in the middle um, of the road in front of Papa Do's off of 75. I know exactly where that's at. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the next thing I know, I don't even remember parking, you know, doing all that. But the next thing I know, the police were at the window and who knows how long they were trying to uh, wake us up or whatever. And he said, somebody thought maybe y'all was dead or something. What's going on? I, you know, and, and then I can't, it's real fuzzy what happened, but I just know that they took us to jail 
and they gave us a PI. I've been in a situation where in Austin, I was partying with some friends, driving from Giddings to Austin to go to uh, a party. And I was drinking and I had my car was like it reeks of alcohol because I was drinking in the car. At one point, I was living in my car. So, you know, like wasting the liquor and everything. When you walk in the car, the smell is when you get in the car, the, um, the smell is so strong. Right. Of the alcohol and all of that. And um, that night I did have a drink in my um, cup holder and the, the officer stopped me. He said because I was speeding or whatever. And he said, he said, I smell alcohol. He said, have you been drinking? I said, no. I said, I don't drink. I said, we're on our way to a revival. She just sprayed some cheap perfume. That's not alcohol. I would never drink. He let us go. Just gave me a ticket. You know? So it's just, and there's so many instances where things like that happened that clearly there was a power that was greater than myself, that God was watching out for me the entire time. And that's why I can't help but to work this program like my hair is on fire, you know, and to be of service to someone and give some other woman who thinks that she cannot recover to give her hope. So I want to make a couple of announcements real quick. I want to let all of our listeners know that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of some things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing a virtual basket to help keep Sober shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help cover our monthly operating expenses. I want to mention our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward in the last few days. David R., Stacy P., Veronica J. I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener, and our sole focus here at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people, and that guides everything that we do here. So when did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol, and what did you do about that thought? That seems like that was a long journey. I will say in 2016, we were evicted from a different, from a second apartment. And that one was like totally devastated because before, you know, we would move a lot, but we would move before they could actually like throw our things away, you know, out, (laughs) out of our apartment or whatever. But this time, I don't know, we just stayed thinking that something different was going to happen. And the constable knocked on the door, and he was like, this is the day they're coming to move all our stuff out or whatever. So they just start throwing stuff out. And, and, you know, I had pots that had, like, uh, food in it. I had fryers with grease and all this different stuff. And they didn't care. They just, like, put everything in a trash bag and just... It was just like totally insane. But anyway, so when all of that happened, we really didn't know where we were going to go. And we happened to uh, get a hotel room in Plano. 
And I don't, you know, I was thinking that, okay, this is only going to be a short period of time, but it actually uh, ended up being when that was in 2016, when we went and we were in that hotel when I went to the Magdalene house in February, 2019, with me getting fired from my job, it did a lot to my confidence and my self-esteem that I really felt like I that I wasn't uh, capable of having a good job again. And so it's for a long time, I didn't even apply for a job. And a friend of mine um, worked as a caregiver and she told me about that position. And I was like, okay, I'll try that. Before we got evicted from that apartment in 2016, that's what I was doing was just like doing caregiver work. And that kind of job allowed me to drink as freely as I wanted to. It was elderly people, you know, I didn't have to do that much. I would take the drinks with me. If I ran out, I would go search in their cabinets and drink their stuff up. Sometimes I'd have to be trying to find a way to replace it. It was just a crazy game. When we went to that hotel, we, uh, like I said, we were in there until 2019. And uh, before I went to the Magdalene house, this is kind of what started my journey to sobriety this time. Uh, my oldest daughter, she's a real, like really saved and she's, you know, God-centered and all that. She has been since she was a teenager. She was an MC at a conference, a very popular conference in um, College Station because she went, uh, she graduated from A&M. So she have a lot of people, a lot of friends there. And it's real funny because the people who put the conference together she's known them for years and they were there to support her uh, while she was in college and they all knew that her mother was an alcoholic um, my daughter had invited uh, she invited me two two times to to go with her so I went with her to that conference I don't even like really remember because everything is so fuzzy but all I remember is number one I was supposed to, they asked me to cook um, some items for the conference, like breakfast uh, bread and uh, vegetarian soup and just different stuff because they know that I cook. I love a uh, passion for cooking. But anyway, I didn't have a place to cook the food. So I went to Austin, which is where my mom lives, and I cooked all of the food there. But I was like drinking and stuff the whole time. And I didn't have a car at the time. And so one of my mom's friends offered to take me to College Station for the event. So I cooked the food, and as we were, I had been drinking for days. I had been wearing the same dress for days, not showering, none of that, just crazy insane. So my mom's friend came to pick me up, and we packed up all the food. My mom rode with us as well. I'm in this woman's car. I have an open container just drinking in her car. So disrespectful. And I had to, uh, I made an amends to her for that. It was just crazy. But, you know, I was just out of control. So anyway, we get to the conference and I'm late with the food. And they had to come up with something else. And they just served my food the next day. But anyway, I'm at the conference. And then when everything, when it was time to go into the sanctuary after they ate, I decided to stay in the hospitality room and I had a handle in my back and I'm in a church with a handle sitting in there drinking 
my alcohol while they're in the sanctuary with the opening of the conference. And like I said, my daughter's the MC. She's one of the MCs of the conference. After the um, they finished with the service, then I came on out of the um, the hall and was just with everybody else waiting and looking for my daughter. And a lady asked us to take a picture, asked to take a picture with me and my daughter. And the next thing I know, I got a, a phone call. My youngest, my oldest son was calling me and he was like, mom, he said, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? He said, aren't you at church? I said, what are you talking about? He said, mom, there's a picture of you on Facebook with the handle hanging out of your bag. He said, this is ridiculous. After that, when he, when I, when he called me and told me that, I can't remember if we asked the people to take the picture off or whatever. But that just, you know, I say that to say that's just how bad it was. So when I came back to Plano, you know, like I said, we were in this hotel. My oldest son had just graduated from college. He didn't have a place to go. He had to come to the hotel with us. He noticed that all I was doing was drinking. And I would wake up three, four in the morning, turn on the TV, the ice clinkling in the glass and pouring a drink, you know, three in the morning and stuff. And so one morning I did that. I had woke up and I was making a drink and he, he said, you know what? He said, I'm not going to be able to stay here. He said, I cannot stay here. He said, you, I'm not going to stay here and watch you drink yourself to death. He said, what is wrong with you? You didn't used to be like that. And he said, I tell you what. He said, from now on, you're not going to use my car to go to work. Because I used to use his car when he got back to go to my little caregiver jobs. And he said, if you uh, need to get to work, you need to Uber or take a lift. He said, maybe if you don't have any money for liquor, then you'll stop drinking. And I thought to myself, he don't even know me. I don't need a dime. If I really want something to drink, you know, so after he like was so upset and then even in that moment, he started to tell me how he felt during my um, my alcoholism because it got out of control by the time definitely that he was in high school. He, you know, he plays football and I was his biggest supporter. I went to every game until his last couple of years in high school because that's when they started staying with other families and stuff like that. And then when he went to college, uh, and I only went to one of his games. And he was just like, he said, I, he said, I just felt like I couldn't even call you and talk to you. And he was in college like way off in, Il in Illinois. That's where he went to school. He didn't know anybody up there. And he just said that he felt so alone that he didn't have anybody to talk to. And, you know, it was like a really, 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 um, it was a touching moment because I didn't know at that time that he felt like that, but he was really hurt. So, uh, so then after we had that conversation, then he started talking to me about trying to do some like control drinking as if I've never done that before. So I just agreed, you know, I said, okay. And he said, you just don't drink anything, mom. Just don't drink, you know, that kind of thing. And so we talked a little bit about me going to get help. And at that time I didn't have insurance. So we was just like, where can I go that's free? 
And, you know, I'm going to tell you the thing that was really odd about this whole situation with my uh, drinking is I went to Maggie's in 2012. Then I went to these other treatment centers and IOPs in between. But the thought never crossed my mind. Well, no, I take that back. It did. I did think about going back to Maggie's. I mentioned it to my husband a couple of times and he was like, that doesn't work. He said, all you did when you were there was cook. Because when I was there, I was calling him to bring ingredients and all that. That's what my focus really was, was cooking. It wasn't on my recovery. So, and then when he would keep saying that, so then I would just forget about going back to Maggie's. I stopped drinking. And then like after about two weeks, uh, when my son asked me to try some controlled drinking, we were out and we went to go get some ice cream. And he said, and he looked at me, he said, mom, you're just doing so good. You haven't had a drink. And I really hadn't had a drink. And he said, you're doing so good. He said, I'll tell you what, we can go to Gloria's and you can have one margarita. He said, and, and he said, he said, I, you're doing so well. I'm surprised. And I said, okay. So when he, of course, when he mentions that I'm going to get a, a margarita from Gloria's, my whole demeanor changes. It's like I'm already feeling that comfort before I even put it in my body. Just the anticipation, right, that I know that I'm getting ready to get some alcohol. So we go over to Gloria's, and of course, it's uh, one of the it's one of the uh, places where I went a lot during my drinking career. Was and it the one you got arrested at? No, this one was the different one. This was was actually in <laughs> Allen. The one in uh, that other one was in Firewheel. So then um, we went, and of course, the bartender knows me and everything. He's real happy. He fixes it just the way I want him to. After like a couple of sips, you know, then I'm like, yes, this is just what I needed, right? And so I just get so excited. And I look at my son, he's, you know, he's sipping his just, you know, like it doesn't matter. And I looked at him and I said, let me ask you something. How do you feel when you drink alcohol? And he looked at me and he was like, Mm, it's, it's okay. And I said, no, I said, no, like, how does it make you feel? And he was like, I mean, mom, I don't really feel like that much, that different. And I said, no, I said, when I drink alcohol, I, it just makes me, I just feel like I can do anything. I mean, it is the best thing in the world. I said, if I just feel like everything is good and it just gives me so much courage. And I was just going on and on to the point that I had closed my eyes. And it was like I was in a fantasy world describing to him how alcohol makes me feel. And by the time I opened my eyes and I looked up, he was looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, because he didn't understand that. And the expression that he had on his face, that was all I needed to truly, truly understand that alcohol does not affect a normal drinker the way it affects me. Because, you know, I thought that everybody got that feeling from alcohol. 
and they don't. You thought all the pregnant mothers were like white knuckling it not to drink, but yes. they don't. <laughs> I'm so serious. I really thought that everybody felt like that. And yes. I didn't think, obviously, I know now that I didn't think that the way I drank was abnormal. I did it. So that was the, the key. Then That was like the beginning of my step one experience. What I know now from like trying to being in the program from like 2012 when I first walked into the rooms is I didn't know what step one really meant. And, you know, I just thought that by me saying my name is Patrice and I'm an alcoholic, that that's me admitting, right, that I'm an alcoholic. I didn't know, I didn't realize that I have no control or choice when it comes to making a decision about a drink. I didn't realize the what powerless, you know, that it really meant. And that was the beginning of me understanding that okay, I might really do, you know, have a problem. Wow. And um so after that and that went on and it was only like maybe two two weeks or so after that I was like of course once I had that margarita, I was Um, I was off to the races. And even what happened there at the Glorious is I finished the margarita. So, of course, you know what happened. I want another one. Yeah, but he only said one. He only said one. He said, Mom, I'm not buying you another one. And we argued about the margarita, and I didn't have any money. (laughs) We argued about that margarita, I know, for like 10 or 15 minutes. And the bartender, like I said, because he knew me, he came and he gave me another drink. yeah. Yeah, he gave it to me. Because he knows I'm a real deal, you know, alcoholic. After me and my son had the little experience with the margarita, then I started drinking, going to the liquor store, getting what I needed, all that stuff. One day, I was in a blackout, obviously, because all I knew that I was hanging up the phone, and I knew that I had just talked to somebody at Maggie's. And when I got done, I said, oh, I just called Maggie's. Okay, well, I guess I better call my family and let them know that I'm going to Maggie's. And I remember calling my mom and a couple of friends and, my, and then all of my children, my husband. I remember when I, when I was talking to them and everything, I was crying. But, you know, I had no intentions of going anywhere that day. I was in a blackout. I called Maggie's, and then I asked them to come pick me up. What I thought was only like a couple of hours from the time I called to the time I got to Maggie's. I thought it was just a couple of hours. My son told me it was an all-day affair. I was blacking in and out. I remember that I was asking them to stop at different places that I needed this or I needed that, and then I didn't want them to go in with me. It's because I was, like, getting drinks and stuff. But when I got to Maggie's, I'm surprised that no one called the police. I'm in the driveway yelling. I didn't want to get out of the car and, you know, saying, help, help. He's killing me. Somebody help. I'm yelling. The women are in a meeting. So, you know, and, and, and then I would like, and then when I get inside, then I'm nice. Then I turn to a different person. It, you know, it was a real Dr. Jekyll and Hyde situation. Um, By the time I got to the end of this, uh, of my addiction, I was really feeling, um, I was affected mentally. I felt like 
I was like, my body was outside of me. It was just so weird. I, 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 could, I knew that I was deteriorating mentally. I was indefinitely in the four stages of alcoholism. My, um, my insides were so sore from all the alcohol. And, and emotionally, too. It breaks you up emotionally. Yeah, I was just, ooh. And I had gotten to the point to where I didn't care if I lived or died. And, you know, I, I see that in the book where it talks about that, you know, either we pick up the spiritual tools or we go to the bitter end. And I never thought I would be that person that would be like, hmm, well, it can't be that bad. Let me just see what happens. Because I got to the point to where I was like, in that hotel room and I was just like imagining people coming and I'm dead and they're taking me out of that room. It's like I didn't care if I died or not. And so had it not been for that intervention in that blackout, I, who knows where I would be today. So what happened at your time at Maggie's? I want to see what, how you got into your first 12-step recovery meeting. How did you end up in your first AA meeting? In my first AA meeting ever? No, the, in the chronologically as we're going now, when you went back into Maggie's this last time three years ago, you went to Maggie's and you were there for how long? A couple of weeks? Okay, so yes, Mag the Magdalene House um, detox program is just for two weeks. It's 14 days. Okay. And um, we focus on steps one, two, and three. I mean, and this was so weird. When I was there in 2012, I know that they talked about steps one, two, and three, and they talked about the mind and the body and the allergy, just like they do today. Yeah. But do you know that when I first, um, when I got there, it was as if I had never heard that. Yeah. Before you're like, this is new information. They're like, no, this is the same information we told you in 2012. Yeah. One of the uh, chairpersons was explaining uh, about the mind and the body from the doctor's opinion. And she did a little diagram on the board. And, and then she was talking about the vicious cycle, how it just goes round and round and round and round. And out of nowhere, I just screamed, how do I stop it? You know? And she looked at me because she knew that I had been in and out of the program. And she said, Patrice, it is only a power that is greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. And don't ask me why that was an aha moment. You know, I'm the church lady. Why didn't I know that? And I've been in and out of these rooms for so long. Why is that like my first time hearing it? You know, so um, when she did that, when she said that, then I started to understand that I only believe that there is a God. I didn't have faith, trust in a God. I didn't, um, I had no spiritual connection. And when I look back at all my prayers, even childhood to adulthood, they were all like, God, if you do this, I'll do that. Give me this, and I'll do that. It was all nothing. I didn't have a spiritual connection with God because I, when I was younger as a child, I had this punishing God that I was afraid of. So I only thought that, my, that God was good enough to give me the things that I wanted you know, and I didn't think about nobody else. Even when I was in the church doing all that service work, I did so much. And I would be like, 
why why doesn't um god remove this obsession what else do i need to do and then i like start doing getting into it even more and more but at the same time i'm causing all this damn chaos in the church doing all this stuff trying to get my way mm-hmm. you know if i'm planning an event and i have a committee of people if somebody else have an idea why do i get upset you know if they have an idea and then I try to manipulate things and get it, them back to accept what the way I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and while I was in that, I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. But I see that now. I was just self-seeking the whole time. Yeah. And then when the pastor would like get up and, and say, everybody, thanks, Sister Alotu, uh, for a fine job on such and such, such and such. And then I would be like, oh, <laughs> No, Pastor, no, no. We thank God. Please. <laughs> nice. So um, you did the two weeks at Maggie's. You, you got your physical detox going. You did one, two, and three at Maggie's. And then what, how did you get into, talk to me a little bit about getting some traction in Alcoholics Anonymous and start, starting to find a sponsor and a home group and going to meetings there. And maybe talk to me a little bit about like your first year. What was your first year of sobriety in, in the 12-step program? Of AA sure, sure. So when I left Maggie's, um, actually when I was in Maggie's on my seventh day, on the seventh day, that's when they start talking to you about resources and sober living and all of that. And uh, when I remember when I was there in 2012 and they suggested sober living, I was like, no, I ain't going, no, no, no. So when I did my seven-day interview this time, the lady who was actually working there was in the house in 2012 with me when I went the first time. That's cool. And I tell you, it's just amazing how this comes full circle. It's just beautiful. So uh, she was talking to me, and she said, so where, uh, where are you going when you leave? And I said, I'm going home. And she said, uh, Patrice, do you know where you live? And I said, yeah, I'm going home. And she said, well, how is that working for you? And then I just said it again. I said, I'm going home. And then after I finished that seven-day interview, I went into the meeting room. Nobody was in the meeting room. And I sat there. And it was real quiet. And... I just started, you know, I just sat there for a minute. And for the first time in my life, I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I have never surrendered. I'm telling you. But I will tell you, when I said that, I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off of my shoulders. You know, I don't think I cried, but I was so emotional. And I was at that point where I realized that I can't do this by myself. I needed to surrender. When we read We Agnostics, which, you know, I used to think I never needed that chapter because I believed in God. Not realizing that I was agnostic. When I read in We Agnostics where it says... God is either everything or else he is nothing. What was our choice to be? What was our choice to be on page 53? Let me tell you, that uh, is the, the first thing that helped me to understand what my relationship with God is supposed to look like. It says, I say, okay, so they're saying that he's everything. Wow, that's really big, you know? You know, so if they're saying that he's everything, he should 
come before anything is what I was thinking, you know? But then, then I start getting into this. That's a, that's a, that's like a bomb going off in your life. Oh, let me tell you, it was just It's like a bomb going off in your life. That little 15 minutes, that little 15 minutes that you spent by yourself after your friend talked to you, where are you going? I'm going back home. I'm going back home. I'm going back home. Then you go to the other room. You say, God, I'm willing to do anything. That little 15 minutes that you spend in there, that's like a bomb or an explosion going on in your life that kind of reprioritizes and refocuses everything in your life. And you realize he is the father. I am the daughter. Yes. And I realized that, you know, like I said, I finally realized that I'm going to have to rely and trust God with my life. You know, what I'm doing, it's not working. So I'm going to have to just uh, rely. And I'm like, how do I do that? And, you know, when I get to step three and it's time I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I'm like, how do I do that? It was just like I was so frustrated. And I was so happy when um, I was in Maggie's and they said, all you have to do is make a decision to work the rest of the steps. And as you work the steps, then your life will be turned over to the care of God. That's you know, good, because the steps is what gets us connected to our higher power, right? Yeah. So then I started getting into that 86 to 88 and real, on pages 86 to 88, and it gave me instructions. And when I first started pausing, I was in Maggie's, and I was like, wow, I can't believe I paused. <laughs> wow, she did that? You know, that didn't say nothing, you know, that kind of, you know, but it was just like I was pausing and those things that those instructions is just like it was starting to become internal, you know, a part of me. And then I would just say, I need to go through when they talked about God consciousness. And I was like, I would just go throughout the day. Even at first, I didn't feel it and I didn't mean it. But I would say, God, please help me to trust you more. Help me to fall in love with you. Help me to take my hands off of my life and let you take control, you know, and I would just be saying all these different little prayers throughout the day. And I don't know when it changed to where I was finally like, okay, God, whatever your plan is, I'm good. Even if it looks crazy, I'm going to trust you because at the end I know it's going to work. So I don't know when that changed. And it was, you know, and even like with sponsoring women, I find that the church, the ones that are like into church and religious, because that's what I was, just religious. Um, The religious ones are the hardest ones that they really, really have a hard time with uh, surrendering and letting go. A lot of the guys that I sponsor that are really into church, I just try to make it real clear to them is I love you. I love your church. I want you to keep going to your church. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I want you to love it too. But if you can remember that they're both super important. Yes. And that you're going to find some things here that you're not going to find there. Yes. And I encourage you to try to keep a balance between the two and go to both. Well, and you know, for me, the realization that I had to come to is that I lived in the church, you know, because the church that we were going to before I recovered, they had church at least four times a week, you know, and that's in the evening. And then every morning they had a prayer at six o'clock. So, you know, we, we lived in the church, you know, and so I realized that religion is not enough. Just believing is not enough that we that I have to have that um, that spiritual connection yeah, and the to service. something that's that's greater than myself. And now that I have that, I don't care about doing all the service work. I don't care about being in the choir. Mm-hmm. I'm there for my relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. 
So when you left the twenty, when you left the Maggie's house at day fourteen, I assume you you said you mentioned that you moved to the twenty four hour club. Is that yes? So when uh, after I did the prayer, and then I went to back to the office, and I told, I asked, I let the lady know. I said, hey, um, I'm going to go ahead and go to sober living because after I said I'll do God whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And I clearly heard go to sober living. Okay. So I went back in there with egg on my face. <laughs> and told her, I said, you know what? I said, um, I just prayed about it and I'm going to sober living. And she said, that's great. So she gave me all the information for the Oxford houses and to call where there's vacancies, etc. So I probably called about maybe four or five Oxfords and left messages. Nobody called me back. But the other ladies in the house that were calling and some of them, them same houses they were getting calls back and they got interviews, but nobody called me. So I waited um, for a couple of days because, see, remember, this is at my seventh day that I finally said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then I've already wasted another three or four on Oxford because they didn't call me back. And so I went uh, back to the office and I told her, I said, hey, no, they're not calling me back, but they're calling other people. And she said, well, why don't you go to the 2-4? I said, I'm not going to the 24-hour club. And she said, oh, no. It's, it's like they've remodeled it and everything. She said, you, you'll be fine. Just, you know, make the call. So um, I went ahead and I called. And at that time, Stephanie was the women's coordinator there, liaison. Is that how you met her? That's how I met her, but I but listen at this. Yeah. So when I called her and she told me that there were no uh, vacancies, and she asked me when I was getting out, and I said it's going to be like four days, and she said, "Okay, well, call me tomorrow and let's and let's see if there's any vacancies." So I called back the next day. There's still none. I called back the third day. There's still none. And she said, uh, "I really thought that we might have." Uh, a space open up in phase one, but it's still not open. She said, just go ahead and call me tomorrow. And I was like, okay, but I'm getting out tomorrow. I need to know, you know, what's going on. And she said, well, I can't tell you because we don't have any vacancies right now. So the next day I, I didn't call. I just said, I'm going to get my stuff and just, I'm going straight there. Yeah. And so my husband came and picked me up and we went straight there, and when I got there, she said, you are not going to believe this. She said, somebody just left today in phase one, and we were not even expecting it. She said, so I guess it's meant for you to be here. Wow. And that's how I got in there. Wow. And, you know, it was so weird because when I told everybody that I was going, you know, people that know me and stuff, they was like, Oh, you're not gonna like it there. Do you know where that, that is? And, blah, blah, blah. and I looked at them, because, ooh, I'm so glad that I was saved. But I looked at them and I said, hey, what is there not to like? I am fucking dying. If I don't stop drinking, I am going to die. I have to do something different. So, you know, when I uh, went to the 2 4, I clearly. Receive a message I, that God told me. He said, you know what? You're going to be here for six months. And you're going to be sponsoring women and carrying the message. 
Wow. Those are two things that I never, I refused to do before. When I was in the room before, if they bug me too much about that or keep trying to get me to do it, I'll stop coming to the meeting or I, you know, or eventually I just go back out and relapse or whatever, you know, I never wanted to do it. But this time when I heard that, I knew that I had to be willing and I prayed and asked God to help me to be willing. And I was, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I was afraid. I was nervous, but thank God for, um, the foundation that I had at the Magdalene House. Thank God for the 24-hour club, all the meetings and the different people that came in, you know, to carry the message and that would come and hang out with us. And they were all doing this thing. And I said, you know what? I got to have it. I see now that I'm not one of those people that can just go to meetings. Yeah. No, I I have to do everything. Because I've tried that. One time I was, at one point, um, during the years, I was going to meetings like four and five times a day. Yeah. And I would be like, gosh, why don't this feeling go away? Let me go to a meeting. So I had to do it totally different. I just, I just thank God that I was able to go to those two places. And I had good mentors along the way, good sponsors. That's what I want to talk about next. Talk, talk to me about your sponsor and working the steps and what was that like for you? How'd you get a sponsor and what was that like? Well, the uh, first time, so when you're in Maggie's, you have to get a sponsor your first few days mm-hmm. so you can work the steps. So I chose my sponsor. The sponsor I chose was the one that was talking about the going round and round and round and round, mm-hmm. the vicious cycle. So I chose her. And we got to like, uh, I had did my amends, and then so it was time for me to do step 10. Well, it got to the point to where, I was calling and there was no answer. I was leaving messages, no responses. And then when I finally talked to her again, I was like, um, I told her, I said, I've been trying to call you so we can get through, you know, with the steps. And then she said, well, just go ahead. And then, you know, and as far as like, you know how, while you, while you're in, uh, while you're working your steps, you know, when things come up, et cetera, you call your sponsor. And so she told me to just leave her a message because she wasn't answering. So then I texted her and uh, she said, no, don't send me text. She said, just leave me a message. And then I called one time and the voicemail was full and I wasn't getting responses. So from there, that's when I changed to a different sponsor. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I had her. It was Teresa. She works at the Magdalene House. She's actually the director of the social detox. So she was my sponsor. And I never planned on working at Maggie's. I had a job. I worked as a caseworker. And I did not, uh, I just never knew that working for Maggie's was going to be a part of my deal. But anyway, when I left Maggie's in 2019, I started volunteering. And then I started um, doing overnights every week. At least, you know, I would overnight at least once a week. During the week, I would work at the front desk. Because, see, I have to do everything totally different. And when I first got out, I didn't have a job. So I made sure that I stayed busy with volunteer work. Uh, That's when I started to learn how to sponsor. And um, so she took me through... um, 
the rest of the steps. And she works, uh, she's a, a person that carries the message and she sponsors women. And I wanted what she had. And then I started going with her to carry the message and stuff like that. And then that's how I learned how to carry the message by going with her. Isn't that fun? Do you, did yeah. you enjoy that process? Oh, it's the best thing, man. I, I, it's just crazy. It's like almost, it's like, um, why didn't I do this sooner? But then I have to remember that God's time is best. Yeah. You know? It seems like your alcoholism took you to a place of uh, loneliness and isolation a lot. And then now you're in sobriety. And it seems like you know that you need to stay active. You know you need to not isolate. You know you need to have a sponsor. You know you need to go to meetings. You know you need to be in service. And that's part of the deal. And it's like we're able to do that because we're not drinking all the time anymore. And we, we have a little bit more energy, maybe a lot more energy. Uh, and for my, from my experience, it's, it's really exciting. It's an exciting time in sobriety. I think early sobriety, uh, is an exciting time or can be an exciting time when you hook up with a, a person that you call a sponsor and they are in it to win it and they're in the deal and they've got traction in the program and they are willing to work with you and uh, give you assignments, um, and take you with them to, um, speak as, speaking assignments or service assignments. It's just a, it's a fun time in sobriety because you're coming out of your, shell of your addiction where you've been damaged, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, every way that you can be damaged. It's fun to come out of that period and, and see that period of reconstruction in front of you. Um, has the desire to drink or use ever returned since you've been sober? And what have you done about that? Not in a way where it lingers. If I think about a drink, yeah, it is just like a fleeting thought. And yeah. sometimes just even the thought of it, yeah. there is like discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you know. Yeah. yeah. What, what triggers it? Like a TV commercial or just a fleeting thought or seeing somebody it's in a restaurant? Nothing, I, nothing like that I can think of. Like, I could just be anywhere. Heck, I can be in a meeting. Yeah. And the oh, thought yeah. may come. And I, it, it's, it's just like that. But it's nothing that's ever like I had to think about. Oh, do I really want to do that or not? You know, I truly, truly believe. And, and please, I know that I'm not that far removed from a drink. If I stop doing... What I'm doing today, if I stop living in 10, 11, and 12, you know, that I'm not that far removed from having a drink. But I really, 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 really know that step one is my truth today. Um, I'm going to tell you this. Like the first year of my sobriety on page 30, where it said, um, says we had to fully concede to our inner most selves that we were alcoholic and the idea that we can ever drink like normal people has to be smashed. You know, I know, you know, now I know that for the longest, I I knew that I couldn't see life without a drink. You know, it's just like, I I couldn't imagine. It's like, what does that look like? Yeah. I, I didn't even want to imagine it. And for 11 months, uh, whenever I would share in a meeting or when I would read that page, I would like cry at, at those words, the idea that it has to be smashed. Or if I shared and I said, and today I know that it doesn't matter how long I'm sober. I don't, it'll never be different. I used to ball. I would ball crying. And when I, when I was 11 months, um, we did a presentation 
um, for the Magdalene House. I wasn't working for them then. Uh, they asked me to join for a presentation that we did um, for a court system. And when I said at that time, I did not cry. And I said, yes. <laughs> I re- yeah, I was like, yes, I'm really like starting to accept that. It took me 10 years to get there because there, yeah. there was this point in my story. And I don't even remember what it was. But I remember the first 10 years of my sobriety, I would tell my story. And every time when I would get to this one point, mm-hmm. I would cry. And I think I just flashed back into my mind. I think I would cry every time when I told my story the first 10 years of my sobriety when I would tell about how... Uh, I went into 1919 Apple Street in Oceanside, California to get sober again, to get a, <laughs> you know, try again, get another set of books, another sponsor, another sprite date, another uh, desire chip. And uh, they called on me towards the end of the meeting because they didn't know who I was. I was just some new weirdo sitting in the back and they just were like, you, what about you? Do you want to talk? And what I said was my name, or what I, no, this is what I wanted to say. I was mm-hmm. hoping to say this. This is, what right, I was, right. this is what I was gonna say. This is what I want to say. This is not what happened. Instead, what happened, uh, I started crying immediately before I even said anything. I think I said, my name is Mike Alcock, and then immediately started crying. Uh, tears just flowing down my face. My throat closed up real tight. And I somehow like was quiet for like 60 seconds. And I, wow. I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk, but I couldn't breathe. Yes. And my throat closed up and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I finally choked this out. I said, my name's Mike. I'm an alcoholic. I've been drinking every day for eight years. I can't stop drinking. I used to be an Alcoholics Anonymous eight years ago and I had two and a half years sober and I've been drinking every day since mm. I relapsed. And I don't know what to do and I can't stop drinking you guys mm. are going to have to help me. And tears would just stream to my face. Wow. It was so, I was so in touch with that emotionally, and I still That's remember beautiful. it, that I would just cry every time. It took me 10 years to be able to get to that part and not cry when I tell that part. Yeah. It was wild. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with your children and how that has received some redemption and recovery. What's going on with you and your kids? Right now, it's good. Right? <laughs> That's all we got is right now. Right, right now it's good because yeah. uh, I'm I'm not drinking. You know, I'm recovered. But Do, have they ever come to see you on birthday night and seen you pick up a one, two, or three year chip? Oh, they came to both. They've been at both birthday nights. They really? actually. That's so cool. Uh, my youngest daughter has was has always been the one that she's very very angry, and I sometimes wonder with the. Uh, her staying with a f- couple of different families, like if something happened or something that she's not, but she's like, she was really, really bitter. Well, you drink and put them through a lot. When I first got sober this time, and because this has happened so many times where I'm doing good and all that, right? Mm. She was just not buying it. And she was just like, it would be like, we'd be on the family chat and I'll send a text. Hey, I got 30 days today. Da, 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 da. And everybody was like, congratulations, mom, way to go, so good, da 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 And she would just not say anything, or she would just say something like, uh, she'll start talking about the dog or something. You know, it's just like she don't want to hear it. And, um, and so it used to, like, really, really, I used to really, really get upset, and uh, it used to bother me. And when I did my amends with her, she didn't like say anything, you know, just like, okay, you know, that just that kind of thing. So, and she continued to react that way where she didn't like really acknowledge anything about my sobriety or anything like that. So I was talking to my sponsor and my sponsor would always tell me, she said, Patrice, she has every right to feel the way she does. She has 
every right. You know, just because you stop drinking don't mean that, oh, she's going to be so happy. You know, think about, you know, everything that has happened, you know. And then we always go back to that uh, part in the book where it talks about the tornado, you know, roaring through the family, you know, and all of that. So I thank God that I just kept praying about that until it didn't matter, you know, how she felt, you know. And, and then, and I stopped posting it in the family thing too. I stopped doing that, like about my milestones and stuff. The first year when I got my chip, she wasn't there. Everybody else was there. This time uh, in 2020, it was on Zoom and they all were on there. Really? Even the youngest one, the youngest daughter. Really? And they all had something to say. You know, and it was just like, they really, really support me in my recovery. But one thing that they had to get used to, when I got sober this time, I, had to, I knew that I had to prioritize my life. And the way my priorities today are is first is God, second is my program of recovery, and then third is family. Me being in sober living all together two and a half years, because after I left the 24-hour club, I went to Oxford for two years. Wow. And I was able to get that structure that I needed. So they were already used to me always going to meetings, meeting with sponsees and, and everything. And, you know, I think today I moved back home, let's see, in September of this year. I just moved back. Congratulations. Back and, home with your husband. Yeah, with my husband and my son. They're, he's used to it now. And they know that that has to come first or else I will be drunk. So you were out of the house for almost three years in recovery. Mm -hmm. Situations getting better, getting healed, getting structure, learning life skills and tools. Learning how to live life as a recovered woman. (laughs) Learn how to be a good girl. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't even think that I would be in there that long. Yeah. No, when I got to the two four, it was pretty clear that God wanted me there for six months, and I stayed right. Yeah. And then after that, I said, "Okay, well, I'll go to Oxford, and I'll just be there for a year." Mm-hmm. I was actually there for two years. I'll just be honest with you: if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be sitting here. Really? I would not be sitting here having this conversation with because you. Because why? They provide you heavy structure, accountability. Yes, it gave me an opportunity to practice, you know, what I needed to do yeah. in order to live. Yeah. You know, did. like I said, I have I have found out people sometimes I know they probably think, gosh, she's so, you know, passionate, da 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 yeah. But I worked hard in my addiction. I mean, I worked extra hard to make sure I had something to drink. Every minute of the day. Alcohol was my God. I took it everywhere with me. I planned my whole life and everybody else's life around it. For real. It was, it was, it was so important. It was my everything, to be honest with you. So the same energy that I put into my alcoholism I have to put it into my recovery. I have to give it that same energy. I do. Yeah, I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. I was like, when I said when I first got sober, I thought to myself, I was like, Mike, you drank every day, so you might want to go to a meeting every day. Mm-hmm. And at first, I was like, ugh. 
I was like, I go, what do you mean every day? And then I was like, you, you mentioned earlier, like an hour ago, like, I'm not embarrassed to admit it. There were times in early sobriety and even long-term sobriety where I will sometimes go to two or three meetings a day. Yeah. And why? Because, um, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just feeling like that. Sometimes yeah. I want to be a service and I want to be there and I want to be a good example for other people, what, what it can look like. Sometimes I'm just bored. Sometimes I'm lost. And sometimes I just need to go in there and really listen to what other people have to say. Let's talk about your relationship with your husband. How has that been healed and transformed and changed? What's going on with you and your husband lately? He has never, ever once like been like, I can't do this anymore. Really? Can you, he is a saint. Let me tell you. He's a you. tough man. He is a saint. And he was cool with you be gone for three years? Kind of. Did y'all talk about that a lot? Of course. But, you know, I was it's, since I was local, yeah. I was here. We all saw you each know, other all So the we time. saw each other. Did, yeah. he ever, did he ever say, come home, please come home? Uh, what, how much longer are you going to live there? Was he begging you to come home? Or what was that happening? Not really begging me to come home. But, you know, being in, even at the 2-4 and in Oxford, you have, like, two or three days that if you need to be out overnight, you can. Okay. So, so you, then that helps that feel like you're not really gone, gone, gone. So you would bounce back and yes, forth. Yes. I could, you know, when I wanted to stay mm. a couple of days, I stay a couple of days. That's fantastic. Yeah. But you know, he, I don't even, I tell him, he just, even his faith, um, in God, you know, he has like childhood faith. I mean, like a childlike faith. <laughs> That's exciting, right? Yeah, he's just like, it's just crazy. Is he inspiring to you? Is that inspiring to you? He's very inspiring. He is like, I wish that I had the faith that he has. Do you think maybe you borrow his sometimes? I have to. I have to. Yeah. You know, and especially in the beginning. Yeah. So that I can even get where I am today, which I am so, I know, I'm like, there's so much more than I need, but as far as faith is concerned. But I mean, I think that he helps me yeah. uh, with that. I now that I understand spirituality, yeah. I'm sorry, spirituality is so different from just religion. I borrowed uh, my sponsor's faith uh, in early sobriety because he had just so much. He just had an overflow. Yeah. He had extra. Yeah. And I was coming up short. I mean, I knew that I was an alcoholic and I knew that I believed in God and I knew that AA could probably save me. Because it had before, I was like, yeah, I could probably do it again. Um, but every time I was around him, he had an aura of uh, that I that everything was going to be okay, and that he was okay, and since he was okay, I was going to be okay. Mm. And so I copped that, you know? I was, yeah. I was like, yo, let me borrow some of that faith. I know. Yeah, because I knew, it seemed to me like I could almost bank on the fact that he was going to make it through tomorrow sober, but I wasn't sure about me. So I would listen to him and he would tell me what to do. And he'd be like, Mike, you need to go home and read more about alcoholism and there's a solution. And I was like, okay. And then he would say, you need to go home and write this down. You need to go home and pray like this. Yeah. And I was such a neophyte. I was like, yes, sir. I was like, yes, sir. And I really was able to, to latch on to him. Um, let's talk about one of the steps. Is there anything of any one of the 12 steps that you want to talk about or highlight or have any special meaning to, to you? Anything, anything you're working on right now? It's kind of... It's kind of up to you. Anything on there you want to jam on a little bit? Well, I know like for me, um, once I really, really understood the true meaning of step one. And, uh, we read it. We read it. Yes. Yeah, step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. For so long, I thought, 
that, you know, like I told you, it was just like me admitting that I'm an alcoholic, right? And the powerless, I never even, like, didn't understand what powerless really, really meant. And today I understand that, that, you know, I can make a decision. I can make decisions around everything else in my life, very sound decisions. Yeah. But when it comes to alcohol, there I can't. You know, if I pick up a drink today, I actually cannot tell you what's going to happen. I can't. I can't predict it. And when I used to think that the unmanageability um, was my consequences, you know, and it's not my consequences. It's the fact that I can't control alcohol, you know. It's, that's what's making my life unmanageable is the fact that I cannot control how much I drink, you know, and what's going to happen after I take that first drink. So step one was like really, 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 really um, huge for me. Um, but, you know, I told you with the carrying the message and the sponsoring how I never wanted to do it. So um, step, step 12 is one uh, step that I never practiced for sure until this time around. And what made me, I don't know, God just told me that, right? But when um, in Bill's story on page 14, where it talks about, uh, I think at the top of 15, where it talks about unless a man enlarges his spiritual life through work and sacrifice for others, um, he would surely drink again and to drink is to die, like that kind of thing. Mm. That's where I realized that uh, step 12 is really, really uh, important. And in working with others on the first page where it says nothing else ensures immunity against um, relapse or something like that, yeah. like working intensive work, with intensive work with others. Yeah. And so, you know, so then I just, I'm like, okay, so this is relapse prevention. Yeah. It's insurance. number 12, right? It's insurance. Yeah. yeah, it is because, um, that's something that I never wanted to do. Yeah. And you know, and I know now it's because I, it was all about me. I was so blocked. So I, I was so blocked that I didn't even understand didn't even really know the meaning of the serenity prayer. Mm -hmm. Just chanting. Yeah. Just chanting it. Because what I didn't realize before is that I really, really did think I knew everything. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? Can you believe that? Are you serious? Me too. <laughs> I thought the same. I really did think I knew everything. And I've seen this prayer in AA for years. And um, this time I paid attention to it. Uh, and it's the set aside prayer. It's God, please help me set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, these steps, and especially you. For an open mind and a new experience with myself, my disease, these steps, and especially you. And I'll tell you what uh, prompted me to start praying this prayer is because when I read the spiritual experience when I was in Maggie's, the essentials of recovery are honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And I was just like, wow. And I've been hearing that before, but I had never like read it and just received it in that light, right? So I actually started praying and asking God for an, for a, um, for an attitude of honesty, open-mindedness, 
and willingness. And when I really look at it, I've never been any of those things <laughs> in my life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, even as a kid, I was so dishonest, you yeah. know, and then open minded, thinking I know everything, not open to other people's ideas and suggestions yeah. uh, and then willing yeah. and not doing not wanting uh, not doing. I didn't want to do things that I didn't want to do. Right. Yeah. And that's what <laughs> willingness is doing something that I really don't. <laughs> And I, yeah, and I, I practice these things. I'm not perfect by yeah. no means. Yeah. Another description know? of the willingness that I think a lot of times, and I'll talk to my wife about this a lot, is um, just being an adult. And I'll, yes. I'll tell her, I was like, sometimes I tell her, I'm like, hey, Kristen, you know what I'm going to do today? Bling, bling, bling. And you know what? I don't want to do any of those things, but I'm going to do all those things because that's part of being an adult. Well, you know, I, I uh, was telling someone the other day, I said, for the first time in my life, I am adulting. <laughs> I'm paying my bills. I'm paying my insurance. And not just when I take it off the lot, I continue to pay it, yeah. and, you know, on the car. And so it's just like, it's so, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And that for so many years, I did not realize that I was not adulting. Yeah. A lot of other people probably did. Wow. Yes. Yes. You're right. You're right. A lot of your friends and family are probably like, she's not adult. I know my uncle did every other month. We asking, can we borrow his truck so we can move? You know, yeah, just like, he's like, what in the hell? And I'm thinking that this is normal. Come yeah. on now, Patrice. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, it, it's like, it's like you, um, in my experience, it's like I have slowly by little over the years, months and decades, let go of my old life and my old thoughts and my old ways of doing things that no longer served me and no longer worked. And then once I got rid of those things, I had more room in my vessel of my soul to add new things in it. Yes. And, and I hang out with recovery people in the recovery community. So I put, and they have good ideas on how to adult and how to like be spiritual and uh, yes. live an emotional balance and live to good purpose and be of service. So I, I um, emulate a lot of their behaviors and thoughts of way of doing things. And I replace a lot of my old thoughts of ways and, and jettison those and then put new ones in and slowly by little I change. And, yes. and it takes years though. It takes it years. It does. It does. It takes years. And I there's a guy that goes to my meeting. His name's Terry. And he goes to one of my favorite groups in Dallas called the Aquarius Group. And he's the only one I hear him, him, him say this, but he says it almost every meeting. And he tells us, tells me, tells anybody that's in the meeting, give yourself the gift of time, time, time. Come all the way in, sit all the way down, and take a deep seat. Mm. Take a real deep seat. That's and, a good one. Yeah, and give yourself the gift of time and allow God to, or your higher power, whatever you want to call it, yes, to get to work on you and to untangle the mess that is you and, and straighten you out and get you on the, the path to where, you know, he really wanted you to go the whole time. And it's like, it's always, the longer I'm sober, I feel like I've learned that it's, for me, Always more God, less me. That's yeah. the answer to everything. More God, less me. A deeper and a stronger and a more abiding faith in what I believe in, which is certainly not what you have to believe in. Yes. Or anybody else. I'm open to atheists. I'm open to agnostic. I'm open to any of the great religions of the world. I'm open to nature. You know, whatever you need to get into. Can you talk to me a little bit about the importance of going to meetings and also the importance of, of having a home group? Well, definitely. Um, I used to be one of those that didn't attend the meetings regularly. 
And then if I did go to the meeting, as soon as we said the Lord's Prayer, I'm out the door. Yeah. It didn't matter how how many women would come up to me and try to tell me about the women's meeting and that they go out to eat on this day and blah, blah, blah. They give me a, a, a list with names and numbers, and I couldn't tell you what I did with it. Um, but today I understand that the meetings are important because we are there for the newcomer. And it's a part of us being also able, also able to fellowship and uh, be there to support other people at the meetings who, who are struggling or, you know, just to, cause like now the meeting, when I go to my group, I just made ODAT my home group since I moved back to Allen and I have never like took on any type of position trusted servant position, wanted to hang out with any other people in recovery and all of that. And today it is the joy of my life. It's important because my home, my home group is my family away from home. You know, they're the only ones really that can understand me uh, as far as my disease is concerned. My family doesn't understand that. And I just like being there when a newcomer comes in and, you know, they introduce it. You just doesn't matter. Just go and introduce myself. How are you doing? Want to make them feel welcome. Let them know that if you need anything, you know, here's my number. You can call me anytime. Um, I think it's uh, the most important thing about the home group is being there for the newcomer. Right on. That's fantastic. Yeah. Do you want to um, give out your email address so people can get in touch with you if they're ever in North Texas and want to go to a meeting with you or oh, talk definitely. to you or ask you questions? You got an email address? Yes. Uh, send it to Cake Lady, C as in Charlie, A K E, L as in Larry, A D as in David, Y, underscore N, like Nancy, underscore. TX, the abbreviation for Texas, at yahoo.com. Cake Lady in Texas at yahoo.com. I want to read something from the um, program, and it's called The Rewards. I, wrote this on the I read this on the last podcast. I'd like to read it again today. And these are the rewards that we get for staying sober and being sober. And these were presented at the 1985 International AA Convention by a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous named Ann C., these are called the rewards. This is what you get. One, hope instead of desperation. Two, faith instead of despair. Three, courage instead of fear. Four, peace of mind instead of confusion. Five, self-respect instead of self-contempt. Six, self-confidence instead of helplessness. Seven, the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. Eight, a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt. Nine, real friendships instead of loneliness. Ten, a clean pattern of living instead of a hopeless existence. Eleven, the love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. Twelve, the freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. So let's slide back over to you, and Linda, you can wrap it up any way you want. What are your final thoughts for the audience today? I'd like to read uh, from Bill's story, the excerpt that I was referring to earlier. Uh, it's actually on page 14. This was, like, really life-changing um, for me. Uh, it says, simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. 
I must turn in all things to the father of light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. For a moment, I was alarmed and called my friend, a doctor, to ask if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as I, call, as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you. I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have such experiences. He knows that they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that, those were, that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what have been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. And if he drank, he, sh he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. That was a whole game changer in my uh, understanding, my purpose in recovery. I can go to meetings. Meetings is good, but there's more to yeah. be done. Yeah, I think it's an important message to get out there. It's not just about going to meetings. Mm -hmm. It's not just about you getting sober and you taking off like a little bird yes. and learning how to fly and leave. I think it's important to stay around, be of service to, you know, ensure. Give it back. Maybe. Give it back. Give it back. Because the people that helped me at the beginning yeah. were strangers to me. I knew not of them. Exactly. I, I didn't know their names. I didn't know their histories. I didn't know their stories. But they were physically there at those meetings in Southern California and San Diego. Mm -hmm. They were there to stick a hand out to me, a stranger who was bawling on the back row and crying and having trouble breathing and having trouble talking. Yep. And they grabbed my hand and they started to invite me to go out to eat with them, which I didn't want to do, mm -hmm. but I did anyway. Yeah. And uh, they took me to IHOP the first time uh, after they're like, you want to go to IHOP? And what I was thinking was no. But right. I was out there like, do you want to go to IHOP? And I'm like, no, I'm thinking no. But then my mouth said, yes. Yes. I was horrified. I was like, what are we going? What are you doing, Mike? You just went to an AA meeting. Are you going to go eat with these people? Too? I never used to want to do that. And today yeah. is the highlight. It's fun, right? Life. Yeah. Yes. Go to Luby. Well, we go to Luby's There's a lot of times. And there's so many good restaurants next to my group. We just walk right down there. Luby's is one of my favorite, too. I love that joint. <laughs> I love that joint. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Sober Share Stay. I appreciate you telling your story about your journey to sobriety and sharing it with us. It's going to be heard by thousands of people across the world. And I think you'll be able to help so many, so many people. Thank you. I wanted to remind everybody to go to our website, SoberShares.com. You can email me directly at Mike at SoberShares.com. You can also hit that donate link on uh, SoberShares.com. It's the PayPal link. Uh, the PayPal email is Mike at SoberShares.com if you want to help us out with our monthly operating expenses. Also, if you could go to Apple Podcast um, app, that would be great if you can give us a five-star review and type a little review for us. That helps us with the algorithms to show up higher in the search results and the higher 
higher we show up in the search results, the more people that will hear us, and the more people that hear us, the more people we can help. So that's kind of what we're aiming to do. So if you could help us out with that, that'd be fantastic. I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about some of the audience details I've been receiving on feedback via my app. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the geographical regions where we've been heard and mention some of the countries. And I'll mention the percentages on the first few. In the United States of America, 76% of our listeners are in the United States of America. We've got 10% of our listeners coming from Canada. So hello to all of our friends from Canada. I love Canada. I really do for many, many, many reasons. Uh, United Kingdom, hello England out there. 6% of our listeners are coming from England. 3% from Australia, uh, Kenya, Germany, Ireland, South Africa, France, India, Switzerland, Greece, Belgium, Netherlands, Norway, Philippines, Finland, Romania, Poland, Mexico, Spain, Denmark, United Arab Emirates, Italy, New Zealand, Botswana, Sweden, Ukraine, Iceland, Slovenia, Brazil, Guam, Latvia, Colombia, Rwanda, Bulgaria, Vietnam, U.S. Virgin Islands, Lithuania, Iran, Croatia, Slovakia, Maritus, Zimbabwe, Singapore, Guatemala, Hong Kong, Costa Rica, Indonesia, Uruguay, Republic of Moldova, Thailand, Lethiso, Ghana, Austria, and Russia. So thank you to everyone out there across the world listening to ServerShares. We love you and we care about you. I'm going to read one more piece of article of literature here, and then we'll get out of here and see you all in the next episode. This is called The Vision for You. This is from page 164 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass to you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you troge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, we'll see you on the next episode.